0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: When I first met Barack Obama, he had just finished law school at Harvard, and he returned to Chicago and settled in Hyde Park in the University of Chicago community. So 10 years after he was elected president of the United States, we welcomed him home to Hyde Park for this special live edition of The Axe Files.
0: Mr. President, welcome home. It is good to be back. How's it going, everybody? And welcome back
1: to the neighborhood. Uh, what what what's your fondest memory of uh, your
0: like two decades in Hyde Park? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think I've ever been in this building. No, I know it's very Not nice. Have happened since thing, you thing, left. Things have uh, spruced up. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, my fondest memory of Hyde Park is. Uh, Malia and Sasha being born, for example. I mean, big things happened around here for me. Um, But, uh, you know, one of the things that I always talk about is coming to Chicago for the very first time. Because I'd been living in in New York, and I had decided I wanted to be a community organizer. I didn't know what that meant, but I thought uh, it's... It somehow involved doing good, and this group uh, on the south side of Chicago agreed to hire me, sort of sight unseen. So I drove out here, and I had only been to Chicago once when I was 11. I didn't really remember it. And I drove uh, from New York through Ohio, and I get to Gary, and I think that's Chicago. And I'm thinking, you know, it's rough out here. Uh uh and well, uh, community organizer. Yeah, but you know, this is my job. So I'm looking for the turnoff. And then I hit the skyway and I come through Jackson Park and it's Hyde Park. And I said, Oh well, this is nicer than I expected. Um, so <laughs> and uh and and so Hyde Park was the first landing spot for me, uh, moving here and uh this ended up being the place where I I lived. It was home base. It was where Michelle and I first uh, bought a home, and where our children were born, and um, where I made lasting friendships. So, I, I, I love this place. Plus, there are much better restaurants now than <laughs> there used to be. You, uh, you know, we. I remember a discussion we had uh, in.
1: Right after New Year's in 2007, you'd just come back from uh, Hawaii where you had talked about whether you were going to run or not. And it was, you were leaning very much in that direction. And I said to you, my, my fear for you, I don't know if you remember this, was not that you would lose, but that you would win and that your lives would change forever and you can't go back, it's like damn Yankees. You know, you get to play center field for uh, the Washington centers, but you don't get to go back to your life. What do you miss most about your life before all of this, before you had
0: all these people accompanying you everywhere? Well, l- let me say a couple of things. First of all, your reference to damn Yankees, nobody here understands that reference. Um, okay. I, I mean, you right. have to be basically 60 or older. To be familiar with I that I piece of Americana, in. I knew I um, let myself in for this kind of thing <laughs> when I invited you. But, uh. So that's point number one. Uh, I, I, I do recall the conversation we had, and uh, you know, for those who don't know as much of the background, uh, you know, Axe was uh, my uh, partner in crime. Uh, you know, when we first started... Not real with, crime. But. No. <laughs> um, you know, but but Axe really was the person who uh, I worked with together to shape our unlikely Senate campaign uh, that then thrust me into the national spotlight and then continued uh, into the presidency. And and one of the things I valued most, and we've talked about this, was that uh, David and and... David Plouffe and Robert Gibbs and Valerie Jarrett and uh, all the people who were close to me actually gave me a very clear sense of how uh, uh, unappealing running for president is. And, uh, and that was important because if you were going to do it, then you had to be clear-eyed and Michelle had to understand what was involved. Uh, and I do recall our conversation, uh, you said, uh, uh, the thing I worry about you is—is is you're not pathological enough, right? To—I uh, thought you were too normal. Yeah, uh, to 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 do this. Um, you're right that uh, once it happens, uh, it is somewhat unique. You feel launched into space, and uh, you, you don't fully recover what you had before. I think the the thing that you miss is anonymity, and you don't realize the value of anonymity until you don't have it. Uh, and, and the way that manifests itself is simply that you, know, you can't take a walk. Um, that's what I miss most, Take taking a walk. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, uh, on a nice day, walking along the promenade, and, or you know, we used to take our kids and just bike during the summer from yeah, along the Long Lakeshore Drive, all the way up to um, the aquarium. And before it was all, I don't know what happened. Something got regulated, but there used to be these, uh, um, they were a little bit like food trucks that would be along the way. And, and there was this one in particular that they had this lemonade that was just killer on a hot day. And, and uh, you could buy some snacks and the kids are, you know, uh, trailing behind, and uh, you'd stop at a swing, and uh, that kind of unplanned
1: pleasure yeah. uh, you don't have. Well, the difference now is they'd set up the lemonade stand for you. It's just there'd be nobody else around. <laughs> uh, uh, well, listen, Michelle just wrote a book. I don't know if you heard about this. <laughs> I heard. I mentioned it. it, it's a great read, and I want to say that because I'm worried about her book sales lagging. (laughs) So I thought I should give it a plug. But in it, she was, you know, it's vintage Michelle because she's very honest about everything, including, you know, your struggles as a family and this particular question because you guys led separate lives professional lives before you ran for president. She, was, uh, she worked at the University of Chicago Hospital. She had a very uh, significant role there in, in, in the community, uh, and she had her, her friends, and she was rooted here. She gave up a lot uh, for you and for the
0: cause. There's no doubt, um, and she reminds me of this. <laughs> Often <laughs> no look I, I, the, the uh, uh, I, I am for, uh, extraordinarily fortunate to uh, have uh, been chosen by a woman who uh, is one of a kind and uh, and I do recommend by the way her book becoming outstanding i didn't come here to plug it she 's doing quite well uh, but um, it, it is her and uh, speaks of her spirit. And I, I think that the, the thing that you and I have always wrestled with, it's not just the candidate. Uh, you had to deal with it. Uh, all the senior staff had to deal with it. Uh, if you were married or had children or had a, you know, just a partner that you deeply loved and you're on a presidential campaign, you're not seeing them. And uh, uh, Susan, your wife, uh, would be the first to testify about uh, the sacrifices that all of our uh, spouses or partners or kids made uh, during that process, which is part of the reason why, uh, once we got there, my attitude was, let's make this worth it. Uh, and, And I remember a lot of discussions that you and I used to have about, do we take risks in terms of trying to get certain things done? Uh, or do we play it safe uh, because the polls don't look like they're tilting our way on this or that issue? Uh, and and I, I think it's fair to say, I think you'd confirm that my general attitude was, if I am going to make the sacrifices and ask some Michelle and, and my children to make the sacrifices involved in this seat. Uh, I'm not doing it just for a title and a plaque and um, you know, the occasional uh, Sunday morning interview. Uh, I'm doing it presumably because I'm delivering uh, on the promises that I've made yeah. to the people who voted for me. And and you know let's uh, let's try to get as much done as possible during this time
1: yeah my 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 point was just that in addition to you being away from home because you were away from home for 11 years in fact you probably saw your family more when you were president much more be, because you lived in above the office yeah. than when you were in springfield and washington no no, no but they, she but she had to uproot her she gave up what was a very you know promising and rewarding career and that um, that's hard I just wanted to note it because I think it was a moving part and you must have had some very during that Christmas in 2006 some, some very um, and she wrote about it some very emotional discussions about all of it
0: well look I, I think that uh, uh, Michelle continues to I think give voice to the challenge that a lot of um, remarkable, talented, gifted, ambitious women wrestle with. And I'm sure a lot of the young people who are here uh, have to wrestle with it. We do not yet live in a society that is friendly towards family. We give lip service to it, but we have some of the worst family leave policies and childcare policies and uh, uh, support of, of, uh, that are provided, particularly once children are uh, in the picture uh, of any advanced nation on earth. And the brunt of that still falls on the woman. And this precedes me being president. This was true when I was a state senator. And, and frankly, it, it would have been true to some degree if I had been an investment banker or a big time litigator or a political consultant. And, and you know, those young men who are in the audience who think they're woke uh, should be mindful that there is still an imbalance that exists. And, and we have to, uh, uh, as a society, in addition to individually, you know, uh, in our partnerships, uh, try to correct that uh, because Michelle and I both tell Malia and Sasha, look, um, uh, being being with somebody is easy. Uh, forging a family and raising children is hard, and it requires attention. And uh, when those little things show up. Uh, That's your job. That's your first job. That's your highest priority. Uh, And So you, as a pair, are gonna have to make a decision about how does that work, and um, I'm the first one to acknowledge that Michelle ended up making more sacrifices than I did in that process, and um, it's one that, you know, As I talk to my daughters about it, I I say to them, you've got to make sure that you're negotiating effectively, not not to be too transactional about it, but to make sure that you have a sense of how is that burden going to be shared.
1: I I know your daughters. I'm confident they will. Yes. Um, uh, What was striking when you ran for president was that you were— and you spoke about this. You were literally just a few years out of being uh, a state senator from Illinois, a middle-class guy living over there in Eastview Park, a very uh, a nice but 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 middle-class uh, uh, condo development over there, and uh, <laughs> paying off your uh, just paid off your student loans and uh, you know all of that. Uh, now you're you're ten years removed from. All of that, twelve years removed or fourteen, but uh, you live in this rarefied world where you, you know you never have to wait in a line. You fly for a good reason, fly private, uh, and all of that. How how do you lose your feel for
0: for people? Does it worry you? Uh, no, actually, uh, and, and and I think part of, we, we've talked about this. Um, Michelle and I were fortunate that we didn't become famous till we were like 43 or 44. Um, as you point out, I, we, we, we were well into our careers, adulthood, raising kids, parents, going to Target, going to the car wash, buying groceries, paying bills, um, going to Chuck E. Cheese. Um, and so, Uh, By the time we were sort of catapulted into uh, national prominence, uh, our characters, I think, were fairly set. And we didn't, I think, change significantly uh, during uh, that period. And coming out of it, on the other end, uh, as I said, we, we, we don't have the luxury of just hopping in our car and wandering around the way we used to, uh, th- that I'm sure has some impact. Um, I don't know, Ax, you know, you know me. Do I seem significantly different than?
1: No, but I, I tell I, you,
0: you're not missing anything on this waiting on lines. Well, thing. yeah. I, uh, I, the fact that I don't take my shoes off uh, before <laughs> yeah. I get on a plane, I'm fine with. And, and I, don't, I don't feel as if somehow um, I can't relate to uh, the people. Um, <laughs> Uh, as as a consequence, I he, here, here's what I do think, though, uh, 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 which which may get to your question about uh, about sort of the feel of of politics and 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 the zeitgeist. Um, I think age does shift how you sense where the world's going. Um, I, I actually, and we we've we've talked about this. I I, I actually. I am glad that having had the extraordinary privilege and experience of serving as president, uh, that you don't have the option here of being uh, prime minister or president in perpetuity or as long as you want, um, partly because I actually think that uh, you, you, you don't, get a as good of a sense of where the energy is of the society, where it's pushing in the same way as you get older. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I look at Malia and Sasha and how they get information and and what issues they feel are settled and what issues are still in dispute. And I may not have the same sense of those things as they do, or as the the young people in the audience here do.
1: You're right that you can't serve in perpetuity, although there are some people who would like you to. Uh, You hear all the time, gee, can he come back? Can he run for vice president, and so on, uh, which I know you'd enjoy. Um, But, uh, and I'm, I'm curious, and you may not want to answer the question, but you think if you were on a ballot in 2020 that you would defeat President Trump?
0: I mean, I, I, look, yeah, I, I, I will not answer that direct question for obvious reasons. Um, uh,
1: uh, the reason I ask is people say, well, you know, we can't have another candidate of color, we can't have a
0: woman because... No, that, well, that, 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 that kind of stuff I don't buy. I, don't buy. Uh, I, I am, uh, <laughs> as you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident. Yes, um, that is apparent. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, when I left office, I think people felt after having gone through all kinds of ups and downs that I had uh, taken the job seriously, worked hard, worked uh, hard been true to my oath, uh, uh, observed, and hopefully strengthened the, the norms and the rules and um, the, the values of our democracy. Um, I, I think America was more respected uh, around the world uh, than it was when I came in. And uh, uh, I, I, yes, I feel very confident that I, I was in a position to, uh, had it not been for both the Constitution and Michelle uh, to continue uh, in office, but but I guess what I'm saying is is that I'm not sure it is a uh, it is a healthy thing. I see mm-hmm. in yeah. other countries, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I've known even very good people who they they lose their edge and they get stale and comfortable in the position, um, and and I think it's useful to 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 have. A democracy um, have have to uh, continually uh, evolve. With respect to going forward, the idea that there's some demographic or um, uh, profile of a particular candidate that is the optimal one or the ideal one—that's uh, just not how I've seen politics work. I I, I think. People respond to candidates who speak to the moment in some fashion, and uh, you know, you're the first one, ex, who, who, who talked about the fact that you, you sort of don't know how somebody's going to play out until they're in the race, right? And and they're they're often running. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that. Um, although by the time I announced I was running for president, people were familiar enough with me that they thought, this guy has talent. They didn't necessarily think we were going to win. In fact, I think the odds were... were I think they wanted to see you run the whole gauntlet just to see how you handled it. Exactly. Uh, I think our current president, nobody expected that that would happen, Um, but it did. You, you, You don't know how all these various factors are gonna converge until you try, and uh, uh, you know, generalizations that we draw about, well, a woman's not gonna win this time, oh, this is ideal time for a woman. Uh, you've had one black guy, so you can't have another black guy. Uh, but you know why they,
1: I mean, I'm not subscribing to that theory, but you know why it comes up, because... Because
0: uh, I'm a You, black guy. you
1: spoke, right. <laughs> You spoke, uh, remember, you're great, you're great. For those of you who are listening and not watching, the president enjoyed his last comment. Uh, uh, the, uh, The reason I ask is because you spoke, uh, your, your signature line in 2008, and it was powerful, was, I'm not running to be the president of, 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 of red America or blue America, I'm running to be president of the United States. We,
0: we are divided. In the
1: America world. is bluer and redder yes. uh, today than ever, and race is at the core of some of that.
0: Yeah. Why? Well... I, uh, <laughs> Because, be, because of of, of history, of, uh, because of human nature and our f- deep flaws and foibles, uh, it is um, it has always been the the fault line uh, of of American life. The it is it is the original sin. Of, of America, uh, the fact that that Declaration uh, we hold these things uh, to be self-evident that all men note uh, right away there there is an issue um, are created equal. Uh, that 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 obviously was just some men at the time, and we had to fight and struggle to to. Try to make that real. And, and that doesn't go away right away. Uh, it has, we've made enormous progress. It remains a strong factor in our society. Uh, we are not unique in this regard. Uh, I think what's unique about America is our aspirations to be a large, successful, multi racial multicultural multi ethnic multi uh religious uh, pluralistic democracy you think that's president trump's vision no obviously not uh, you know we we have we have contrasting visions about what america is uh and and you know that that's self apparent but 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 what i what i would say is that Um, the majority of Americans believe in that story. And there is power in that story. And America at its best is a story of uh, trying to approximate and realize those ideals that were set forth. And my election did not Uh, somehow put an end to that struggle. It was one more path along that process of opening up our democracy to all people. Um, And as I've said repeatedly, I think over the last couple of years, history doesn't just go forward, it goes backwards, and democracy is not a static thing. You have to struggle for it, and you have to nurture it and and tend to it. Um, But, Uh, As divided as we appear right now, and we can talk about all the factors that contribute to that, many of which young people here are are familiar with, uh, the truth of the matter is that the majority of Americans think that people should be judged on the basis of their character, not their color or gender. Uh, The majority of Americans believe that uh, we are better off where our daughters have the same chances as our sons to succeed and and and, and do well, and where um, you know we we should uh, consistently do our best to make sure every child has equal opportunity in this society. Where where we fall short a lot of times. In a is, majority
1: of Americans, let me interrupt for a second. A majority of Americans also voted for a different candidate for president, and.
0: No, no. Well, you know, well I, so I, I, we, I, I, we know that there is a majority uh, view on this. No, no, no. I, I understand. Look, David. I mean, if, if what you're saying is is that we have issues in our society uh, around race, <laughs> yes, we do. If if the issue is, uh, does that then foreclose the possibility of another? African American or woman or latina or latino or uh, you know, indian American at some point becoming president of the United States because those issues exist uh, the answer is no now do i do I think that conversely uh the measure of every candidacy in our politics is uh judged solely by diversity? No, there are other <laughs> factors involved too, like what's their platform? Do they have good ideas about how we're gonna create jobs in a new technological society? Do they have a good sense of how uh, we're gonna manage uh, the the threat of climate change uh, and while still maintaining our economic growth? I, there are a whole range of factors here. Uh, and I would argue, by the way, that, and, and you and I have had this discussion, that um, opposition to me and my presidency and my agenda was not solely driven by race. Mm -hmm. There were a whole range of factors. I think there are genuine conservatives out there who are not racist Mm -hmm. simply because they didn't agree with my position on the Affordable Care Act or they didn't agree with my position on guns or they didn't agree with my position on uh, a woman's right to choose. They sincerely held a set of beliefs that were different than mine. and and And, I think that it's important for those of us who disagree with uh, others on some of these issues uh, that we make sure to listen to 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 determine whether uh, there is an honest disagreement about issues here, or whether we think this is just a tribal clash that is somehow inherent in in American life, and we're never going to overcome it. Uh, I I don't think we should be naive and pretend that there's never issues of race involved in uh, the fault lines of American politics, but I also don't think that we want to be reductive and, and say that that uh, explains everything. Uh, let me re-
1: I want to share a question from one of the uh, young people here, Jack uh, Idles. Uh, wrote, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, what would you have done differently to deal with an obstructionist Congress, particularly Senator McConnell? But we can leave him out of it if you don't want to name name. Yeah, I,
0: I, I, <laughs> I won't go there, but uh, it, 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 I, I will say as, as I've been obviously reflecting on this and, and writing about it, um, that the big factor, the big challenge uh, that we faced was the filibuster. And, and it, it's, it's a weird thing because it's not something that the average American spends a lot of time thinking about. It's interestingly enough doesn't get talked about or examined much even by the pundits. It's a given that this extra constitutional thing that says you have to have 60 votes to get anything passed uh, that arose sort of as an accident. Aaron Burr, uh, who at the time was presiding over the Senate, uh, who apparently had bad judgment on a range of things, um, (laughs) sort of decided that uh, you could get rid of the motion to proceed and various Sir sort of ro- the, the Robert rules of order to close debate, and what evolved then is now a supermajority requirement essentially to get anything passed. Uh, it requires 60 votes with the exception of uh, you know, the changes that were made finally with confirmations as a consequence of some well, of the, the obstruction president, that president took place. Said he, we should so, eliminate,
1: do you, think, do you agree it, that we should eliminate the filibuster?
0: That's where I was going, but thank you, David. Uh, I guess I wasn't getting there fast enough. The, 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 the point is that when you look at what happened in 2009, 2010, we had 58 votes, then Al Franken comes in and we get 59 votes, and then for four months, we had 60 votes. And Cause Arlen Because Arlen Spector because already... Well, and, and then uh, there was a temporary... Uh, right, mm-hmm. uh, the temporary right, seat of the Kennedy, and t- so so for four months of my entire presidency, I had sixty votes. The rest of the time, we could not get anything passed unless we got at least one Republican vote. And if you had a situation in which the other party, buttressed by everything from the the right wing media to uh, the Koch brothers and various other groups that were actively mobilized very quickly early on to to ensure that any Republican who crossed party lines was punished uh, and challenged. In that environment um, it is, it is, I think, a, a reasonable argument to make that, that we should have had a discussion at least about whether this filibuster process should continue. Now, keep in mind that a lot of senators like the filibuster because it's what gives individual senators power, gives them additional leverage. They would not have, nec- they would not have given it up easily. Um, but yeah, the original design of the Constitution uh, ensured sufficient checks and balances in part by Having a bicameral legislature and by having uh, of you know, the Senate uh, not originally not uh, directly uh, uh elected by popular vote, but the, even now you know Wyoming has two votes, and so does california uh so it's it's you already have a range of of mm. counter majoritarian uh structures embedded in the Constitution. Adding the filibuster, I think, has made it almost impossible for us to effectively govern at a time when you don't have, uh, when you have at least one party that is not willing to compromise on issues.
1: I was there uh, when the uh, midterm happened in 2010. Well, let me ask you one thing before I get there. Garland. Uh, there's w- do you thinking back, is there anything you could have done recess appointment or otherwise to to uh, install uh justice garland no. or judge garland as
0: justice garland uh, no we we looked at the possibility of recess appointment it, uh, the There were already rulings on the books that would indicate that we could not uh, uh, do that and and have it upheld um, and Part of the challenge that we never completely solved, and and I'm the first to confess, I was not able to get this messaged effectively. Um, Filibusters, obstruction, process fouls, uh, violation of norms, not calling a Supreme Court justice. It's just not the stuff that moved people to vote. Um, And... Uh, the other side didn't get punished for it wasn't
1: there also this assumption that hillary was going to win and she'd probably fill that seat if, if
0: you didn't well that, getting that, getting there, there was that assumption but it wasn't uh, it wasn't it the was reason wrong. We, it wasn't the reason that we didn't try to get it no, no, done it's just understood. that we couldn't uh, we couldn't right. focus enough attention on um, on the fact that the basic norms of governance uh, that took place you know, uh, f- for prior presidents suddenly didn't hold for us. You know, the only time it got attention was when it was so outrageous, like when a guy <laughs> stands up and says, you lie, in the middle of a joint session of Congress, where people go, huh, well, that's different. Yeah, it uh, was. But it-, it didn't result in... Uh, the opposition party, uh, the, the the Republican Party, losing seats. You uh,
1: so you went through this change of party control in 2011. Yeah. Uh, what what do you what does President Trump not know about what he's about to
0: face that he should? I, you know, I, 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 let's reframe that. What did I experience? Because I, I don't know what he's going to uh, deal with. Um, uh, it's a different environment and a different time. Um, uh, I, I think that it, we tend to overestimate the power of the presidency to uh, move major legislation in the current environment. Uh, that's been true for a while, and, and there's a there's a historical reason for it. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party were not polarized in the '50s, '60s, '70s, even into the '80s, uh, in part because uh, ideologically, though each party was a mess. It, it, you had Dixiecrats, uh, Southern Democrats, who were very conservative, not just on racial issues but on a whole range of issues. You had Rockefeller Republicans who were very liberal. There wasn't yet what had taken place, what we call the great sorting, where uh, people suddenly figured out uh, that there's a national alignment, and if I feel this way, then I must be a Democrat versus a Republican. Everything was much more regional, and, and, there were, and so as a consequence, you could have uh, a lot of cross-party movement. Um, Moderate Republicans got wiped out. By, 20, by 2006, even before we came into office, there were barely any what would have been considered moderate Republicans. Um, and there were very few conservative Democrats. So There may so, be some
1: moderate Republicans,
0: but they didn't well, feel they, free but, to but act they, like they, they were moderate. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, when I say moderate, I mean yeah, yeah. Their, their ability to vote for yeah. it. You know, after they came out of office, they'd be like, oh, Iraq, you know, I know this is really unreasonable, I'm sorry. But <laughs> it didn't do me much good, um, or the country much good. And, and I think that's still, to some degree, the case. But, but what that means then is, is that um, the legislative process more or less shuts down. You then have to look at uh, your administrative a- a- and, and uh, executive powers uh, as a way of moving the needle on a whole range of issues. Uh, that was controversial to some folks. Uh, why is he signing executive actions as opposed to passing legislation? Uh, it wasn't my preference, but the alternative was complete gridlock and, and uh, the inability to solve real problems that were out there at the time. Now, this this is a general problem that we're gonna have with our democracy until we get Congress working uh, because what is absolutely true is Congress punts so much now and has for the last 30 years. Uh, it, it, this wasn't just true under my administration. The, the The ability to move big legislation through has become so challenging and the window for any administration to do it is so narrow that what you end up having is a situation in which agencies and essentially whoever controls the White House is filling in all kinds of gaps because there's no clear direction about what exactly does the Clean Air Act mean as the science evolves around climate change. So you've got the courts and the agencies interacting and Congress is sort of a bystander to the whole process. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's optimal, but I also think that uh, when you are in that presidential seat, what you are constantly figuring out is, within the bounds of the law, and I I wanna make clear that distinction, Mm -hmm. within the boundaries that have been set by your Office of Legal Counsel and uh, the courts, uh, can you exercise enough uh, executive uh, authority to be able to get some things done.
1: One yeah. big thing you did get done was the Affordable Care
0: Act. Yeah, we got that passed. Yes, yeah. and in this that was last, good. that was. And by yeah. the way, uh, I, my understanding, we're in open enrollment right now. So uh, I want to give a little plug. Anybody who's listening, uh, yeah. Yeah. if you uh, if you don't have health insurance. Go on healthcare.gov. You used uh, to send me down there to uh, the
1: Hill, or others did, Rahm and others, when they were grumpy about the Affordable Care Act to tell them why this was going to, in the long run, be a political winner. It wasn't in 2010. How gratifying was it to you to see all of these candidates all over the country, Democrat candidates, campaigning on the Affordable Care Act and Republican candidates saying... Yeah, we're for that too. We're for pre-existing conditions.
0: It felt gratifying. I, I wish it would come a little bit earlier, but that's uh, it, it. Would have been helpful on, on uh, in 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 2014. Uh, but look, uh, you, you will recall that uh, healthcare was always hard and tricky, and during the campaign. You and, and the pollsters and Pluff would warn me that this is uh, a big headache because despite the fact that the United States has uh, is unique uh, among advanced uh, economies r- around the world uh, in not providing universal health care and, and having as many uninsured as we do and paying more for and paying more, much more for it. Um, Despite all that, 85 percent of people have health care in the country. They did back then. We got it up to 90, uh, but uh, and people tended to believe the worst about any changes in the health care system. If you already had health insurance, you figured any changes might make things worse for me. Uh, and so the politics of covering that last 15 percent and making people's existing insurance more secure was never easy, never good, which is why nobody had gotten it done. Now they've experienced it, and they don't wanna give it up. Well, and, and, and my basic theory was if we could get the equivalent of a starter home, if we could change the terms of the debate so that it was a given that everybody should have health insurance that is affordable, and that was the default, that was the baseline, which, which people don't remember, the, uh, before uh, the Affordable Care Act, that wasn't a given. So we, we changed the terms of the debate by, by insisting, everybody's gotta have a baseline, we got this little starter home going, we knew that you know, it, it, it wasn't everything we would want, but that it would at least Uh, begin the process of getting more and more people accustomed to the idea that they should have insurance and, by the way, that the people who do have insurance should have insurance that actually is worth something. Are you confident that uh, the future will bring more and more reform
1: and improvement?
0: Yes, because that's been the the trend of the expansion of the social welfare uh, system uh, in this country. Social Security started as a very modest program for widows and orphans, and it excluded... Because of Southern Democrats uh, who didn't want African Americans uh, to benefit, it excluded domestic workers and it excluded agricultural workers. And over time, it evolved into uh, what we have today, Medicare, Medicaid. All these things have started off more modestly, and then over time, people realize uh, there should be uh, improvements to it. I think the same thing will happen with the Affordable Care act what's what what we've seen is a in this election and again I'm the first to confess it took longer than I expected yeah is that this basic principle that people have that yeah everybody should have health care and if you have got a pre-existing condition I shouldn't be foreclosed from getting health care I think that now has been uh, asked and answer asked an answer yeah. and I and I would be surprised if you once again have uh, Republicans going after this thing as hard as they have, they, although they are continue to undermine it uh, in various places, um, just out of spite, uh, in ways that I, I've never fully understood. I mean, the the, the one thing that um, has gotten me fired up on occasion is the idea of, for example, Republican governors whose constituents would directly benefit. And, would, and and the, the states would not be paying, initially it was entirely free, and then afterwards a modest match, their unwillingness to provide coverage to residents of their states in, in places like uh, Texas, uh, where you've got millions of people who, who lack basic coverage, um, I, I found, Offensive. Well,
1: three states with Republican governors, Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, voted to expand Medicaid in this past
0: election. Yes. So that and, tells and, and, you and a the, sense and, of where the market is on this. Eventually we'll get there. Think about how many people didn't get a checkup, didn't catch uh, an illness early enough. The, the suffering and the pain that has been unnecessary as a consequence of, of an ideological or political Agenda is uh, is not our finest moment,
1: yeah, and this was one of those issues you mentioned earlier where you um, were very clear that you were willing to lose yeah. uh, for it. Um, it wouldn't have passed from my vantage point without the help of Nancy Pelosi, who is Speaker of the House. Um, she's in the news now. Um, what is your sense of that and and whether Democrats in the Congress need her in these next two years. Uh, like, you know, Churchill got dispatched after World War II, but he led the country through the war, you know? Um,
0: look, I, And they know who Churchill is. they do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I will just offer my opinion about Nancy Pelosi. I'm not gonna wade into mm-hmm. House Democratic Caucus politics. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi, when the history is written, will go down as one of the most effective legislative leaders that we, this country's ever seen. Um, and you know, uh, Nancy is not always uh, the, the best on you know, a cable show or with the quick sound bite or what have you. But her skill, Tenacity, toughness, uh, vision is remarkable. Uh, Her stamina, her ability to see around corners, um, uh, her her ability to to, uh, stand her ground and do hard things, and to suffer unpopularity to get the right thing done. Uh, I think stands up against any uh, person that, that uh, I've observed or worked directly with in Washington during my lifetime. And um, I, I, I think that uh, we, we have a tendency in our politics in this country to put a premium on Performance art, and you know, can they give you a fancy speech? And uh, are they, you know, uh, you know, uh, quick and cool on some YouTube video? Or you know, how, how are they? How's their banter on, you know, the late night talk shows? Yeah,
1: you've ruined it for everybody.
0: Yeah, well, but but I tell you, you know. I, a lot of this job, or a lot of the work of government is not flashy. It is, it is nuts and bolts and it is a grind and it is hard and it's a matter of, of competence and knowing your stuff and being willing to just uh, do the blocking and tackling involved in uh, actually getting things across the finish line and, and uh, my experience has been that Nancy Pelosi knows how to do that. And and, uh, she was an extraordinary partner for me. Uh, throughout my presidency. Well, I can
1: understand you not wanting to wade into house
0: politics. So that I just not. wanted to give my opinion. about <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, no, that, you know.
1: no um, I have to ask you this question from uh, from Quasi Frank from Brooklyn, who asked: Based on the current state of the nation, do you have any regrets about something you did or did not do during your presidency, and would you change any decisions you made?
0: Well, one of my biggest regrets. Uh, is, is one I've talked about a lot and is in the news today. Uh, uh, some of you uh, heard that just a couple miles from here, there was another shooting in Mercy Hospital uh, where what appears to, and not all the details are in, but it appears a disgruntled ex fiance decides to come in and shoot his former fiance and, and then shoot several others, yeah. uh, police two others, well. or three others, including a police officer. Um, and uh, you know the I, this I've also said the hardest day of my presidency was was the day of the Newtown shootings, in um, Sandy Hook, and, and 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 having to be having to comfort parents whose six year olds had been slaughtered uh, just two days before, and the and the angriest I was ever. Uh, during my presidency was seeing Congress not do anything about it. Completely unresponsive. Um, uh, Let me just interrupt
1: you for one second and say, uh, uh, Leah Sofer, uh, another student asked, what was the most challenging part of the presidency on a personal level? This would
0: be it. Yes, And, 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 and the fact that I, by my second term, it was literally every two or three months where I was having to travel and hug sobbing parents, or spouses, or children because of mass shootings, and it had become routine. And we had this you know Kabuki dance of well, we're offering our thoughts and prayers, and you know people would start talking about we need to do something about this, and the other side would immediately. You know, the NRA and, and uh, the entirety just about of, of uh, the Republican Party and, and some Democrats where the politics was tough in their communities would, would just shut off any discussion of dealing with this public health crisis that does not exist anywhere else. Right? This is unique to the United States relative to our peer countries. It just, it's not even close. Um, we, we have significantly brought down traffic fatalities during your and my lifetime. The, the, the fact is that it is much safer now to drive. And the reason for that is people said, huh, we should take a look at this and say, why why are all these people dying in cars? It didn't mean we took away all cars, it meant we did try to figure out how to make this more sensible and more safe, and that included everything from airbags and seat belts to anti-drunk driving campaigns to how do we engineer roads and how do we analyze when accidents take place. Same thing with airplanes, same thing with just about every other aspect of our lives and you have this one area that is treated as completely off limits but you know it, why
1: you know why mr president because they they would argue the opponents that this is the one
0: that is uh, enshrined in the no, constitution well but well, actually it turns out for example free speech the First Amendment, the last I checked, is enshrined in the Constitution, and yet we... <laughs> we hope it stays there. We, we, but we you know say you can't yell fire in the middle of a, right. of a theater. We, we, we consistently make decisions around uh, how do you balance the, the health and safety of, of people with uh, the, the, the requirements of freedom. And and look, you, you and I have had conversations about this. Uh, I represented Illinois. Downstate Illinois is full of hunters. Uh, and 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 Michelle and I used to when we were when we were uh, campaigning out in Iowa, and we'd be in rural areas, and you'd see some farm uh, house, you know, uh, miles from a big town, and you'd say, I can see why I'd want a firearm here because if somebody just pulled into my driveway. The the, the sheriff's not responding for quite some time. (laughs) I might need some protection. I, I, so the issue, I mean, it's it's so frustrating that we can't even have this conversation without knowing where it ends, because it is self apparent that we can create a system in which people could still have a hunting license and an ability to uh, have a firearm in the home for their own protection, but that there were significant limits and restrictions on their ability to shoot up hospitals and schools and synagogues. And the fact that we can't have that discussion, in part, has, is driven, not simply organically. This didn't just get mm-hmm. uh, emerge on its own. This, this was, in part, manufactured by gun manufacturers, and economic interests, and it was exploited for political purposes. And they mind a cultural divide. So. And they mined a cultural divide, so that guns became a symbol, in part of that divide, and uh, it, it took on an outsized importance, separate and apart from the actual policy that was at issue. And and. Um, Do you see any hope of changing it anytime Well, I I, I see hope in changing it if people vote. And I see hope in changing it if people um, of goodwill examine our willingness to try to come up with some improvements. I, I don't see hope in us suddenly mm-hmm. uh, uh, eliminating uh, the, the, the high levels of gun violence that we have in our society right away, but I see us being able to improve things. And this is something that I've said consistently. i said on the campaign trail, uh, and, and as you know, I used to say in the White House. Um, I am not somebody who believes that uh, something's not worth doing unless you get all of it done. I, I am a big believer in the half a loaf. I'm a big believer in better is good. And and on issues like this, I would gladly take better where I'm saving maybe 100 people a year and then it becomes 200. Maybe then 1,000 kids aren't getting shot. Uh, I would take that in a minute, even though I would still mourn and weep for uh, the, the thousands of others uh, who we haven't saved yet.
1: I, I have to ask you, um two things before I, I want to talk about what you're doing now. Uh, one is your reaction to the midterm elections. You jumped in there. I remember you telling me the Bushes had taught you a lesson in how to be a former president, and that was basically to give room and space for the You felt the need to uh, jump in there and campaign. Yes. Um, and how do you feel about the results? The president said it was nearly a total complete victory for his side, but.
0: Um. <laughs> I, I I think we did very well, and the reason I was particularly happy was to see the significant increase in vote totals. Uh, the, the percentage of people who voted, the percentage of young people who voted, yes. was heartening to me. Um, there was a, a, about a 10% jump in uh, the voting rates of, of I wanna report to you
1: that we ran a drive here on this campus and University of Chicago led the nation. I like that in you.
0: Yes, so. Uh, That's what I would expect. So. um, My general theory of of politics is if you vote, you win. (laughs) And if you don't, you lose. And if you wanna move your agenda forward, then you have to have more votes than the other guy. Uh, it's not all that sophisticated. It's math. It's math. Yeah. Um, you know, you want Congress that's more responsive to the issues, vote more of your uh, party into Congress, and then hold them accountable. Uh, and that's how, that's how this stuff works, for the most part.
1: So you were... You were I was pleased. Pleased with the result. Yeah. I have to ask you this question, because I bet you uh, there are people here who would be interested in it. As you look to 2020, what are your impressions of Beto Mania and what sort of role in the Democratic Party
0: do you see him taking in the future? Uh, impressive young man uh, who, who ran a terrific race in Texas and uh, what, I, what I liked most about his race was that it didn't feel constantly poll tested um uh, it, it felt as if he didn't poll in fact it it felt as if he uh, based his statements and his positions on what he believed and um, th- that you'd like to think is normally how things work uh sadly it's not um I th- you know, I think you and I would both agree that in 2008, and hopefully, you know, pretty consistently all the way through, that um, that the reason I was able to make a connection with a, a sizable portion of the country was people had a sense that I said what I meant, right? Uh, and and that's a quality that, a, as I look at what I'm sure will be a strong field of candidates in in, in 2020 many of whom are friends of mine and people I deeply respect. Um, What I oftentimes am am looking for first and foremost is, do you seem to mean it? Are are you in this thing because you have a strong set of convictions that you are willing to risk things for? And um, He struck you as a guy who? Yes. Uh, and, I, and I think there are others. I don't think he's unique yeah, right. in that. I, uh, you know, we, we've got a number of people in the uh, who are thinking about the race who I think fall in that same category. And, and being able to sustain that and maintain that uh, in the heat of battle, when the spotlight's on and there are significant risks and you taking that position may lead you to lose this race that you've invested so much in, um, that's, a, that's the test I wanna see somebody pass. Um, it, and, and by the way, I, I, I can't even say that that is necessarily always a winning formula. You know, I, 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 I don't want to leave people with the impression that the good guys always win, that the folks who are the most honest always succeed in politics, I, I, no, I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of times where the outcomes may be different and disappointing. But what I will say is this, uh, the, the the people who move the needle forward, the, the people who move the country in a way that goes back to that earlier comment we or discussion we had about uh, the history of this this uh, of the United States, the the, the folks who um, make it more likely that our children live in, in in a place that is fair and free and provides equal opportunity to all people, um, the moments where we've moved forward has to do at some point with somebody's. Uh, being, a, being willing to, to risk everything for for, for a larger principle. And, and that's true sometimes even for folks who weren't particularly principled in the past. You look at Lyndon Johnson at the moment he signs the Civil mm-hmm. Rights Act and he fights to get the Civil Rights Act passed. This is not somebody who had been in the past uh, particularly principled. Um, but, uh, uh, Grace, lit upon him, and, and at a certain moment he said, you "Now we shall overcome, and he uh, used his mastery of the Senate to, you, to get that thing through. You know my, uh,
1: you know how I think about politics. It, it seems to me that uh, what we saw in this election and what you may see in 2020 is that people are gonna be hungering for that, and someone, I, and I'm not pushing Beto O'Rourke over other candidates, but one of the things that made him appealing was he went everywhere, treated voters with respect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a lesson that whoever runs needs, needs to learn. I think the country's hungry to be knitted back together and to see
0: a sense of mutual regard. I'm a big believer, as you know, in you show up everywhere and you talk to everybody and you don't write people off and you don't assume Oh well, that person's not woke, and you know what? Let me tell you something. If, if how are they going to wake up if you're not having a conversation <laughs> with them and listening to them and getting a sense of what they <laughs> and, I, uh, and, and and you may need to be awakened to how they're feeling and what they're going through. Um, I, uh, I I've never understood. This idea that there you have to choose between your base and sort of a, a for, you know, expanding and reaching beyond your base I, you talk to everybody you, you uh, the, those of us who consider ourselves progressives, one of the principles we have fought against is somebody reducing us to our color, or our gender, or our sexual orientation, and, and suggesting that there are things we can and can't do, where there are things that we can or can't believe because of those attributes, those 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 immutable characteristics. Well, we, you can't then turn around and say, well, yeah, you know, that, that that white man in Arkansas, I'm not going to reach him, or you know that uh, you know evangelical. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're not gonna be interested in uh, hearing about uh, my environmental issue. You don't know that. You have to engage and pay attention. Uh, and, 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 and when that happens, you're not gonna immediately uh, bridge all those divides. There are very real differences. These are hard issues a lot of times, and people genuinely disagree. But, um, At at minimum, you will uh, establish. You 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 will be um, contributing to the 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 goodwill and the habits of the heart that are required for our democracy to continue to function. And and that is no small thing. Not at all. That's. More
1: essential now than ever, so I've run over way uh, over I know I know but we you know, but you know what uh, we knew that was going to okay, happen didn't but it? it's my it's it's my podcast, so I'm going to run over <laughs> uh, but uh, I can't leave without pointing out that there are uh, Obama scholars who are studying at the Harris School here, and it yes. speaks to the work you're doing now through your foundation right. uh, and what you're what, what you're doing and what your hopes are for it.
0: Well, we just completed a, a, a Young Leaders Summit here in Chicago that included some of our Obama scholars who were uh, doing great work at the... There they are. They're all cheering and clapping. These are remarkable young leaders from uh, around the world who uh, are studying here at the Harris School, at the University of Chicago, uh, but also uh, collaborating, learning from each other, uh, working with us to to, uh, find ways in which we can support their efforts back home. Um, And what what I am uh, constantly amazed by is how much talent there is everywhere, young people who are smart and driven and innovative and idealistic and are absolutely intent on changing the world for the better, what they are concerned about, I I think, is that the old institutions aren't always working the way they're supposed to. And they're sometimes cynical about those existing structures. So part of what our job is, uh, through the, uh, the presidential center programming, is to give them a platform where they can start creating and remaking and revitalizing. Communing with each other. Uh, uh, these these institutions, institutions that can provide workers with representation so that they can uh, make a decent living and, and, and have decent uh, jobs in, in this new economy. Uh, you know, innovations that help us deal with uh, the environmental consequences of climate change and start uh, uh, getting on top of that, you know, innovations to ensure that the governments are transparent and, 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 and uh, representative. Uh, and, and the creativity and the, um, the passion that uh, they've already displayed uh, makes me optimistic. And we had young people even younger than these folks, uh, some of them just out of high school had already started their own projects in Arizona and South Carolina, uh, as well as here in Chicago. So um, I am very excited about the programming and obviously I'm excited about us building a presidential center that in partnership with the University of Chicago, I think uh, can help tell the story of, of not simply my presidency, but um, as, as I think the best museums do and and libraries do uh, tell a story about uh, America's journey to uh, to to create a more perfect union
1: well, as you know, this institute of politics is we're working the same side of the street here.
0: We're going to be great partners as always to, yeah
1: well, I appreciate our long friendship and collaboration and um, you know we share a vision and it was such it's been such a joy to be along on this journey with you, and thank you so much for being here today.
0: It was great to uh, be here, and and, uh, congratulations to all the IOP uh, participants. Uh, You guys are doing great. Look forward to seeing you do great things.
1: Thank Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.